Oh my god. Oh, We're recording. We are recording. So I thought we'd chat first. Okay. I want to hear about your recent adventures in Finland. My recent adventures in Finland. So I guess the most adventurous part about it was getting to Finland and then getting back from Finland. This is probably the most difficult travel I have had with just things not happening the way they should happen. But once I got there, the research actually went really well. Like all good bad travel stories, starts at JFK, where the plane, which had been there overnight, and my flight wasn't until 11.30 p.m., was apparently parked so far away that we ended up taking off almost four hours late. And I just got an email from Norwegian Airlines saying, this is something that could not have been avoided, so we are not reimbursing you your extra night at a hotel. Of course not. Anyway, so I missed all my connecting flights and I missed my connecting train up to Romaniemi. Ended up having to spend an extra night in Helsinki where I get to go to this badass gym in Helsinki with this giant mural of Thor on the wall. It was the greatest experience. Even being jet lagged, it was amazing. What version of Thor? Was it a Marvel version of Thor? Was it a like a Norwegian? Yeah, I would say it was more Marvel-y. If, if nothing else, I wouldn't say it was like straight up Chris Hemsworth, but it was definitely the outfit of Chris Hemsworth. That's what I'll say. But then I got to Romaniemi. This was kind of a, a pilot testing the waters to see how participants would feel about all the different measurements I wanted to do. We got six people and all six were willing to do everything and seem to think that they're going to find other people that are also going to be willing to do everything. So I'm going to head back in October to just do doubly labeled water and physical activity. So looking at total energy expenditure and physical activity levels. And then I'm going to head back in January to redo all the brown adipose tissue measurements that we were doing since they should be cold enough, long enough by the time January hits to see a difference between spring and winter in brown adipose tissue. So who who are these people? You just randomly like, hey. Thank you for helping me set up what I should have set up on my own. So these are reindeer herders. Ah. Finland. Yes, yes, I know. That's just, that's how it should have started, right? So yes, I'm measuring energy expenditure and brown adipose tissue activation among reindeer herders in and around Rovaniemi, Finland, uh, which is right at the Arctic Circle and claims to be the home of Santa Claus. Yes. (laughs) Very important to mention that. So how healthy is the fat of Santa Claus is your study? Santa was not one of my participants, I am sad to say. You still have time. Maybe next time. Maybe. This was rural Finland? So, Romaniemi is a city. It's a small city, uh, but the herding herding cooperatives are all kind of around the outskirts of Romaniemi, all within probably an hour or two driving distance. Okay. Yeah. But they need a fair amount of land to herd reindeer and graze reindeer and all of that. So I'll be going back again in October during the herd roundup, which this is one of those interesting things that it's really bad for the herders, but good for me. So the herd roundup never occurs at like an exact time every year. It's like late fall. That's all you get. There's like a month window in which it has to happen. And it's usually like they wait for the day of right weather, this, that, and the other. Which, you know, if you're trying to plan a short trip to just give people accelerometers and dose them with double-labeled water, that's really hard (laughs) to be like, can you give me any sort of shortened timeline of when I should show up? So this year, apparently the military is doing something by the second week of October. I don't know if they're running training exercises or what, but basically they told the herders that they have to have the roundup done. 
by the second week of October, no ifs, ands, or buts. Hmm. And that's really crappy for the herders because it's cutting into their grazing land and it's cutting into basically their entire schedule of operations, though it does help me narrow down, like, get there the first week of October and you are guaranteed at least one herd roundup. So that's going on. But decided that it wasn't a good idea to measure brown adipose tissue at the time for two reasons. One, the herd roundup is just way too busy. You're never going to get people to give up the amount of time needed for that protocol. And two, October still isn't, they haven't been cold enough, long enough in the winter season to expect any sort of appreciable quote unquote adaptation to the cold. So going to go back in January at the end of my winter break for about three weeks and basically measure as many people as I possibly can for brown adipose tissue activation. You know, I text you like every day and it takes us recording a podcast for me to like learn what goes on in your life. It's like, Karen and I talk about books and shows, but I don't know what she listens to. So I have to admit, these days, I don't really have a ton of time for podcast listening. What do you listen to for music? Because I was thinking, oh, we, keep, yeah. we keep playing the same intro outro song because I just didn't want to step on anybody's toes. So it's yeah. a song from my days as a musician but like if we rotated our songs like they do on uh, I think it's the daily zeitgeist where they they have a new song every time but I imagine we've run into like weird licensing issues right well I don't know you know that's what we have a, a new assistant producer to figure out for us for. <laughs> speak so who is our new assistant producer Chris mine as well, well. Yeah, we might as well. We, uh, we we talked about her a little bit on a few podcasts ago. Caroline Owens, who is starting graduate school at Emory this year, is, is now a, a junior service fellow for the Human Biology Association. And in that capacity, her service will be assisting us with the Sausage of Science. So we're super stoked to have her on here. She is currently driving to Nashville, not listening to us since this is a <laughs> recording it. But she will be listening to this later when she edits it for us and makes us sound articulate. So what are we doing today? Today, we're going to have one of the Human Biology Association meeting student presentation winners. Isara Godinez won for her poster this past year when we were in Austin, Texas. The poster is titled The Cardiometabolic Health Among the Pecha in North Carolina. And Isada, who she, she goes by Isa, is from UNC Human Biology Laboratory. So she's the one we're inviting on today. Anyway, so welcome on the, the Sausage of Science, Isa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And congratulations again on winning the award for your poster. So Chris, do you want to start us off with the first question? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we want to ask you about your research, but we want to know who the researcher is too. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to anthropology, if you don't mind. So I'm currently pursuing a PhD in anthropology at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm originally from Mexico, but my family decided to move to the U.S. when I was 13. So that was fun. Are you being facetious? It was interesting. So yeah, and the sort of upheaval that followed that move. uh, Also during your teen years, which is upheaval. Oh my God, that's true. Yeah, Um, there was was a lot of upheaval. (laughs) Some of the things that were constant were things like math and science. So I just really focused on that and kept pursuing that in both middle school and high school. And that was sort of the direction that I was headed entering college. College was when I first became aware of anthropology as a profession where you ostensibly could make a living. Ostensibly, uh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and even though I really, really liked taking classes in anthropology and doing all of that, I resisted declaring a major in anthropology 
for about two years. After that, I just kind of gave up and went for it. Uh, It wore you down. (laughs) Yeah, it just sort of captivated me. The siren song just never... What uh, was it? Was there a person or a subject? Yeah, or? where did you go to undergrad, actually? Uh, I went to undergrad at, uh, so I started off at a community college in Northern California, Shasta mm-hmm. College. Shout out to Shasta College. And then I went to the California State University at Chico, mm-hmm. which is not UC, but CSU. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I took a class. The first class was in cultural anthropology. I really liked the principles. Uh, the professor was just sort of all over the place, the sort of, um, I don't know, most interesting character that I have met so far in anthropology. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. It wasn't very structured or very, I didn't realize that I was learning at the time. But yeah, then I, I just sort of bit the bullet and decided that I, knowing that I would have to pursue advance, an advanced degree to do anything remotely related to anthropology. So you don't think you could have gotten a job with a BA in anthropology? uh, Several people have mentioned that that's kind of hard to do. Mm. And I believed them. I didn't try. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta, we gotta do something about that messaging in our, our field. That, that really is a big turnoff for those of you who didn't opt to come in. Right. Yeah. So just really quickly before you go on, where, where in Mexico are you from? From Jalisco, which is Western Central Mexico. And then your family moved to where? California? Is that why you were in California? Okay. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, we moved there. Another thing that sort of kept me was that at the time, I didn't have uh, legal status to be in the U.S. And so I didn't qualify for things like financial, federal financial aid or any sort of any of that. So making the switch from a short two-year business management to 15-year when all is told, career was sort of a big, it was a big thing to overcome at yeah. that time. Yeah, no, our listeners can't tell, but we're all blanching because that's a that's a major commitment on your part. And it, that, that sucks. Can't even imagine. Sucks. Yeah. There's that much of, there's that many impediments to quality scholars mm-hmm. getting a decent mm-hmm. education. So thank you for making the effort. You're welcome. Okay. And then, and so from there? From there, I went to the four-year university, everyone kept telling me you need to go to a PhD program, you'd be great, all these things, but no one ever really said what a PhD program entailed and how to get into one or any of that stuff. So I came to UNC for an internship, a summer apprenticeship, they called it, that was geared toward students from underrepresented populations and they just sort of like laid out all the steps this is what you need to do first this is what you need to do second this is what a prospectus is this is what all of these things are and uh, while at that internship I made a lot of connections here at UNC got to meet some of the people in my department now my current advisor and just got some face time in with people and got people to to put a face to a name and then the rest is history I came here in 2014 and here I am I'm really glad that you mentioned that because it's so hard, especially at the undergraduate level, for students to even think about putting themselves out there and meeting people that they need to put faces to names. Mm -hmm. That's tough. That's a difficult thing to do. So props to you for doing it because not many are willing. And that's something that, you know, we as advisors and graduate students who see undergrads encouraging that behavior because no one knows what a PhD entails until you start asking somebody else. There isn't, you know, it's not just plastered on the wall somewhere. So yeah, no, that's really great. So let's talk about your research if you're up for it. 
yeah just kind of give us a brief rundown of the study uh, what it was and what the main goals were so this study was a, a follow-up on my master's work which i did among the purapecha population in mexico mm -hmm. so i looked at remittances and health status in association with cardiometabolic health and sort of the next logical step was to examine the same health conditions but in the population in the u.s so the goals here were number one first and foremost to see whether people were willing to to do this if they were willing to talk to me if they were willing to get a finger stick give some blood to do this i started this project before the current political situation kind of solidified so i started this in 20 in the summer of 2016 thinking that it would be a project of a couple of months based on my experience in mexico and then things just sort of kept escalating and because this is an immigrant population where again individuals may or may not have legal status to be present in the u.s it's complicated things a lot and what I thought would be a two-month study turned out to be a year and a half project, which I also hear that that's sort of par for the course. In, I, was, in I was thinking that very same, same thing, yeah. No such thing as a quick and dirty study. Yeah, the Mexico one really, really spoiled me. <laughs> in terms of more sort of traditional goals of, of the study, it was to, to examine what, to what extent the population was affected by things like high blood sugar, uh, hypertension, things like that, and also how well the current acculturation narrative that dominates the migration and health field fit or didn't fit this particular population. Yeah, so we're going to hit on the acculturation thing a little bit later, but I want there to be a little bit more background for our listeners. So if you could tell us about the Puripecha population, both in North Carolina and in Mexico, and you know how in the world does a population that's fairly sizable end up in North Carolina, of all places. So the Purepecha population resides in West Central Mexico, pretty close to where I was born and raised. The state of Michoacan, there's a particular well-known area there that's known as the Meseta Purepecha, and all the surrounding towns of this highland location and around Lake Pátzcuaro are by and large exclusively Purepecha. It's a fairly sizable population, like you say, counting speakers and non-speakers of uh, the native language, we're looking at about a quarter of a million people. But if I mention the name Purepecha to pretty much anyone, they're like, wait, what? What is that? And the only reason that I was familiar with this population to any sort of degree was, again, because I was raised in that adjacent to the Purepecha area. They have a fairly long history of migration to the U.S. starting in the 1940s with the Bracero program, which brought guest workers to be employed in U.S. agricultural enterprises, and then that sort of tradition of migration became established. Their move to North Carolina sort of parallels the larger trends within immigrant groups, moving away from states like California, Texas, Illinois, into the South, or what has been termed as a new South, just because of the demographic shifts of a large population that was formerly not here coming in. It's sort of migration network theory at play here. A few people move in, they become established, and then a few other people follow them to this new location. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I remember first coming to your poster and being like, how in the world does a population, you know, end up all immigrating to this particular part of North Carolina? I found that interesting. But it also led me to another question, because I don't think I realized 
when talking with you at the meetings that you grew up very near the Puripecha. And so was it an intentional decision to go to grad school at UNC where you knew there was a Puripecha population? Was that always a goal you had in mind or did you come about that later? It wasn't always a goal. I mean, even if I had gone to a different university to, to do a PhD, there are other settlements within the U.S. There's a really large population in Oregon. There's a really large population in Washington State. Really large population in Chicago, Pennsylvania. So, like all the major okay. universities where I could have gone to do this, uh, are fairly close to to an established Purépecha population. So it was a combination of where is the population located and what? How do I fit into the general scheme of of things at the university? So, did your background help? in your interactions with them in terms of the political climate, certainly they're gonna be wary or maybe cautious, or did you find that they were open to being part of your project? Initially, being from Mexico and being having grown up in the area didn't really give me an advantage. People were not like all of a sudden, oh, you seem sort of like us, so uh, we'll trust you. And this time there's really no Trust is at a very short supply with reason. And so how the interactions happened by making contact with key community individuals that are somehow involved either with the university directly or with sort of like a friend of a friend type of situation, making contact with those individuals. And then after they were able to see that this is not I'm not trying to trick people. I'm not trying to, this is a legitimate scientific endeavor here. They vouched for me to the, to the rest of, of the population. And after that individual had made that recommendation, there were like no more doubts. There were definitely questions about why focus on, on this population. What are you going to do after you have collected this information? What is going to be your connection with us in the future, that type of thing. But it, it was very difficult to gain that trust of that key individual. I had all of the testing supplies for about half of the study. The goal was to recruit 80 people into the study. And I had testing supplies for 40 people. And I was just not using them, not using them. And then it came down to they expired in, in like March. And it was like February 12th. And I was still 40 people short of of the study goal so I was just you can imagine I was just a ball of stress yeah. at that time because this is I'm halfway through my goal of recruitment and that took about a year a year like 11 months to do there's no way that I'm going to be able to get another 40 people within the next two weeks but within those two weeks the sort of the last key community individual one returned from Mexico and two was able to devote some time to, to this and sort of gave me that that blessing and 37 people were recruited in the space of a week and a half. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I, had a, I had a very similar experience when I did my dissertation, but nowhere, well, I would say nowhere near the same political climate, but it was actually an African-American conservative religious church at the same time that Obama was elected for yeah. the first time. So there was all that stuff going on. But that, that interaction between politics and getting your dissertation done, yeah. you're world stop falling apart so I yeah, that completely fits in with our our bill leonard interview too yeah with the Soviet uh, stuff yeah yeah so we're, we're getting some themes going on here crossing yeah. different podcast interviews yeah and again, that's one of the things that 
know what an undergrad mentioned like hey political affairs matter for what you can never predict it always of what's going to happen and how people are going to react and it's just I, I don't think people understand. <laughs> I feel like there's always this perception of academics that, you know, we just memorize facts and we repeat these facts and we're all about, you know, regurgitating things. But how much of our lives is constant adaptation to yeah. you know, try to get our work to work? And I think it's a very underappreciated part and a huge stressor, as you say, because you just never know if it's going to work or completely. Yeah. I think, Bill, you know, he made the point in our recent podcast, which is that so much of human biology research has been disconnected from the political economy of what's going on around it. And without that context, you really, you can't understand a lot, including your experience. So mm -hmm. uh, the election of Trump and the immigration situation, I imagine will play a prominent role in your, in your dissertation. So have fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't envy you, but it's important work. So speaking of which, Tell us what you found. Yeah, so I found some pretty interesting results that some I expected and some I didn't. I expected for cardiometabolic risk factors like high cholesterol or high blood sugar to be elevated in this population, and they were. One of the things that I didn't expect is for there to be sort of better obesity profile in the population here in North Carolina versus that in, in Mexico. Again, the narrative is you move to the U.S., weight gain occurs, changes in dietary patterns occur, and so that didn't really fit in with that, with the narrative. Things like hypertension were more prevalent here than in Mexico, so that was sort of to be expected based on, on findings. And then I used uh, some standardized instruments from other larger-scale studies of health within the Hispanic population, and the concept, the questions that were being asked were difficult to understand. Hmm. Things like, so how many times a week do you consume fast food items? And that's not something that we think about, potentially. Not something that if you're busy with life, if you're in the middle of this stressful situation, you're not necessarily going to remember these things. So that proved to be a little bit interesting when trying to question people about their eating. Things that, that I expected and were different than the literature were the things that people reported eating. So they reported eating more vegetables when they moved to the U.S. than when they lived in Mexico. And again, that's sort of by and large counter to the, to the narrative of more processed foods, more meat, that type of thing. I also found that acculturation didn't really fit in with this, with this population, with this narrative. And I'm sensing a segue into into that. the next question. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to say how, again, how consistent that is with some of the other stories we've been hearing about how the expectations for research are really context dependent and different, different populations encountering globalization and modernization in different parts of the world have had different outcomes. So that's really fascinating. Not one population is a monolith. This has come up again and again, yeah. and we've talked about. But yeah, so the acculturation part, and I'll say that's something that the judges loved, that you addressed this and that you addressed kind of our definition and our way of analyzing acculturation it might be completely wrong and it needs to be reassessed. And so, yeah, uh, if you could tell us why you think that. So why does acculturation need reconsideration? And then what this might mean for other studies and other fields looking at immigrant populations? So big question. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Being myself an immigrant has given me sort of a front row seat into the processes that occur once you move into the U.S., once you experience life here and you try to 
sort of make yourself fit in within the society. And like I mentioned, my observations with, although they were anecdotal and not sort of systematic in any sort of way, my observations with relatives, friends, other members of my co-ethnic group, they didn't really follow that narrative that was established and is by and large followed in, in migration and health studies. In what way? So for example, things like, oh, people would change their eating pattern to be more Americanized. People include more processed foods. In many situations, either like family gatherings or just in casual conversations with somebody at the bus stop or what have you, people would say things like, oh, if I don't eat this particular food, I don't feel like I have eaten. And usually it had to be, it was a traditional food. So in like family gatherings, people would say, oh, if I don't eat, if I don't include tortillas in my meal, it doesn't matter how much I've eaten. It doesn't feel like it was a complete meal and it doesn't feel like it's been like I have eaten that day or that, that meal. And so if, if that's the case, it doesn't seem like people are just going to be having McDonald's for dinner mm-hmm. or Maybe adding a tortilla to McDonald's. I don't know how that would work. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, like, but, it's like me if I eat a salad. I don't feel like I've actually had a meal. <laughs> like, where's the meat? So true. <laughs> and not meat in the salad. I want an entree <laughs> with tortillas. But yeah, so take it maybe a step further and feel free to, you know, just kind of run with it a little bit and hypothesize of, you know, reassessing acculturation and what it means and what we think it means. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see? done, I guess, within the field of anthropology and other fields that are, are using this term acculturation and just kind of maybe considering it like a catch-all for these changes we see in immigrant populations. Mm-hmm. Have it be more context dependent. There might be a population in which sort of the like linear diagram of time and acculturation, maybe that works for that particular population, but in others it may not, and just be more one aware of the makeup of the population that is being studied. So again, the, this idea of the monolith population, reimagine that and also take into account there may be multiple ethnicities, cultures, whatever you want to call it going into place. So with the Purepecha population, there's a degree of acculturation into mainstream Mexican society and to U.S. society that is happening at the same time. So that sort of multi- dimensionality of acculturation. Do you think uh, there's an increasing awareness that like McDonald's and processed food basically just suck? <laughs> among, awareness among whom? If the messaging may, may or may not have gotten out there and, and there's less of a like, ooh, shiny American food, let's eat that. <laughs> shiny because of the grease. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or are there, you know, and, and, I mean, that's, I'm only partially joking because I, I do wonder if the messaging about processed food has permeated beyond our sort of academic spheres and medical anthropology and, and whatnot. But I also wonder if there are other modes of acculturation that may be happening that may be more salient. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in, in looking at are people acculturating into this sort of typical mainstream idea that we have of like McDonald's, processed foods, all of that, or are they going in the sort of like kale and grilled fish direction like what what's happening with that and also i don't think that this idea of like shiny american food has been a huge draw for people it's been more like "Mm, this this other food this weird food we're not really consuming it i didn't see that in mexico in the sort of more rural areas that was met with pizza and burgers were met with suspicion 
not with like oh let me eat this so that i'll become like something else it wasn't it wasn't in that way in the cities however that idea of like shiny american food let me consume it so that i'm part of like the modern world or what have you that was the case but that was among a different population Mm-hmm. You've told us quite a bit about your work, the study, which we we absolutely loved. But what's next for you? Where are you taking all of this? So since HBAs, I've successfully defended this as my dissertation proposal. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. I'll be moving forward with this and I'm currently working on grant applications, getting funding, another thing that I was not told in undergrad have to get all of this funding to be able to do anything. And I'm looking at doing a multi, multi-sided multi study with populations in Mexico and their siblings mm. that moved to North Carolina. And I'll be assessing a lot of the same variables that I looked at for this HBA presentation, things like lipid levels, hemoglobin A1c is a marker for diabetes, that type of thing. But I'll also be introducing more sort of rigorous and widely used instruments like a food frequency questionnaire to draw up dietary patterns comparing both populations. And I'm also hoping to include in uh, epigenetic analyses, methylation analyses to see whether there's any association with changes in physical activity or dietary patterns that are associated with methylation, which are then in turn associated with cardiometabolic risk factors. And I'll definitely keep including things like standardized acculturation questionnaires for both comparability with other studies that have been done before, and also to compare them with what I learned from in-depth ethnographic informations and how, again, how well these standardized instruments mesh up with sort of the reality on the ground. Wow, that's cool. Are you bound for academia? Do you see yourself in a professor researcher role or doing public health work or what? Do you have a long term game plan? You know, that's, I, I feel that that's going to go a lot like my decision to pursue a PhD. This was absolutely wonderful, Isa. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and talk about your fantastic work. Again, thank you for inviting me. Do you have anything uh, else you want to lay on us before we, we say goodbye? Not really. I should have thought of like a memorable way to end. But I know a good way. How can people get in touch with you either via social media or email or those kinds of things if they want to ask questions? Through, they can find me through uh, UNC's Human Biology Lab Group. I resisted. So there's a lot of resistance in my life, it seems like. I resisted. <laughs> creating a sort of social media profiles for my academic self, I guess. My contact information is available through the human biology lab and they can find information about my research, what I'm doing. It's fairly regularly updated and also just about what the lab in general is doing for those who might be at an undergraduate level at the moment or may have taken some time away from anthropology and are thinking about going back to to the good path. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. That's a nice way to finish because you started off so cautious. So the good path, yes. Good path. But yeah, we'll make sure to include a link to the uh, Human Bio Lab website in our program notes so people have quick access to it. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have been Chris. And I'm Kara. And you can find me at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. And you can find me at Kara Akabak on Twitter, which is C-A-R-A-O-C-O-B-O-C-K. And we are the public relations committee of the human biology association we finally got it right everybody we've been calling it the wrong thing i think for almost every single podcast so this is a big win today <laughs> big win all right thank you all so much for listening thank you